Everybody knows about the mustache. Everybody knows what scenes Josh shot. Everybody knows the studio was desperate. Everybody knows we didn't get what we bought. Everybody knows the CG's not done. It's faster paced, but it's not that much fun. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. The following is an in-depth story analysis and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before listening to this review. Imagine watching Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Justice League as a trilogy, having never seen the films before and being completely unaware of the background or story details of any of them. Let's say you're a 10-year-old kid who gets one of those cheap three-movie DVD packs from Walmart for Christmas. Imagine your bewilderment. You watch a competently made and mostly coherent Superman movie with a bleak color palette, a sort of grounded and realish looking world, a story that's a little convoluted and built on some contrivances, but sort of seems to make some kind of sense with rougher action and a darker ending than you'd probably expect. And then you watch a dreadfully long, impossible to follow, incoherent mess of a sequel, which introduces Batman just to fight Superman, is even more violent and takes itself even more seriously, takes place in a less realistic world, and has an even more out-of-nowhere depressing conclusion. And then you get to the last film in the trilogy, the big alien invasion epic, several scenes unrelated to the plot in BVS has been building to, and this time, it's colorful, the story is simple, straightforward, it's not hard to follow, filled with levity, light-hearted superhero action, nothing overly violent, a standard story structure, and no surprises whatsoever. It would probably be the most confusing of the three, because despite being the most familiar and by the numbers, it's the odd man out. It has the same director's name on it, Zack Snyder, but something has clearly changed, even more than between the first and second films. There's clear course correcting in each of these. None feels like it exactly belongs in the world of the previous film, but Justice League seems to wish the other movies didn't even exist, and apologizes for the necessity of referencing them. It seems made for a different audience entirely, one largely ignored with the first two films. It's for the crowd that loves the MCU. Instead of a gritty sci-fi mystery about heavy social themes, it's high-flying action about the same worn-out stuff superhero event stories are so often about. Individuals working together to stop an entitled bad guy who thinks might makes right and loses because he's just out for himself and doesn't understand that there's always someone more powerful and so his power isn't sustainable. That's why, despite having a thing called the Unity, Steppenwolf is torn apart by his own parademons at the end. While it's the Justice League that has the real Unity. You'd get so used to this strange, almost anti-storytelling, that once you saw this generic and safe movie that sort of makes sense but has no story or thematic substance whatsoever, you'd either see it as a relief or as the dullest of the three. The first two movies are clearly somebody's vision. Hard to understand why that's what Warner's let go to screen, but they're uncompromised. They're interesting failures, BVS especially. But there's nothing especially interesting about Justice League except what's left on the cutting room floor, and the fact that Warner's thought a director's exact creative opposite was the right guy to retool his film. 
I can't even imagine Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon trying to make a movie together, like, on purpose. That's like Kevin Smith and Bruce Willis working together. That happened, didn't turn out so great. I mean, they're pickles and yogurt. You just don't do that. It's ironic that as lofty and ambitious as BVS is, setting up the rest of what was supposed to be a five-movie epic, what should have been an even grander event in Justice League, turns into the sanitized, damage-controlled theatrical release, the least ambitious of the three. The loftiest thing Justice League does is come out on time. And the greatest irony, of course, is that a franchise trying so desperately to catch up to Marvel in its world-building and character crossovers as fast as possible, while wanting to completely separate itself from that universe in style and attitude, ultimately abandoned Snyder's vision, even after most of his movie was shot, and brought in the most influential architect of the MCU to rework it. When DC finally got its own Avengers, almost a decade after they nearly beat Marvel to that punch with Justice League Mortal, and back when the MCU was just getting started, it brings in the director of the Avengers in a desperate attempt to save face and keep audiences interested, because of the critical disaster and box office disappointment that was Batman v Superman. Despite hating his script for Wonder Woman back in 07, I'm sure Warners was kicking themselves for letting him go, and then he makes some of the most profitable movies of all time over at Marvel. But this was not the way to utilize his talents. He was supposed to make a Batgirl movie for them, and that also fell through. But this just reeks of desperation. I couldn't have predicted that outcome in a million years. Fan4Stick had probably the most bizarre and tumultuous history in superhero films before this, but Snyder's DCEU has to be the most unprecedented and strangest. And the histories have similarities. Fan4Stick was also the singular creative vision of an unconventional director in Josh Trank, trying to darken up a property that the studio ultimately had second thoughts about, and decided to finish his movie without him. Fox also released an incompetent artifact that barely qualifies as a film, that it was embarrassed to put in theaters and no one involved was happy with. Fanforstic is a more curious case because there was so much mystery surrounding it. As a piece, it's actually more like BVS than it is Justice League. I don't understand how either of those things exactly came to be what they are for different reasons. And unlike Justice League, which is finally seeing a new release with Snyder's footage, we may never know what Trank's movie would have looked like had he been allowed to finish it and edit it his way. There's not a lot of mystery surrounding Justice League anymore. We always knew that Joss Whedon finished it, but it was revealed after the film's release by crew members, like cinematographer Fabian Wagner, that a lot more of the film was reshot than Warner's led us to believe which was honestly pretty evident if you were paying any attention, even if you weren't in the know, because of the infamously rushed removal of Henry Cavill's mustache, which he couldn't shave during the reported 55-day reshoot block because he was still in the middle of making Mission Impossible Fallout, which, incidentally, is the best action movie outside of the John Wick franchise I've seen in years. There's a distracting Uncanny Valley phenomenon that happens with his upper lip every time he's on screen, which makes it clear you're watching a new Whedon scene. He's not in a lot of the movie, one of the big differences between the cuts, but almost everything with Superman is new for this version. And then beyond that, Whedon's fingerprints are all over it, particularly in the dialogue. I'd know it was him even if Warners had kept his involvement a secret. So much of this version is rewritten, Whedon has co-screenwriting credit, and even though Warners chose not to give him co-directing credit, which is generally frowned upon in Hollywood in this kind of situation, as I understand it, 
Those insiders claim 90% of this movie is Whedon's, and I tend to believe that percentage is pretty accurate. At the time of this recording, we are a week away from the release of the Snyder Cut, and that's been edited retroactively, and there's some new footage, like scenes with Jared Leto's Joker, so it's not the true fabled Snyder Cut that may have been released if Whedon had never been involved, but it will give us a better sense of why the studio decided to essentially remake his whole movie at the 11th hour, and what shots from this movie are even his. I said at the beginning, everybody knows what scenes Whedon shot, not all of them, but certainly most of them. It's also a different situation from Fant4Stick in that even though Warners was apparently not totally happy with what Snyder was doing, to the point that they had representatives on set to make sure he didn't go too dark and to try to make him add some levity, like Jeff Johns, he wasn't removed from the project like Trank was. He clearly made some compromises, even in his own version. We learned recently that Bruce was supposed to have fallen in love with Lois Lane after Superman died, and the studio made him drop it. Wow. Batman gets a premonition that if Lois dies, Superman becomes a fascist dictator. But now that Superman is dead, he figures, why not shack up with her? How dare you micromanage Snyder and ruin his creative integrity, Warner Brothers? But there's every reason to believe the movie wouldn't have been totally overhauled like this if he hadn't left the project of his own accord after the tragic death of his daughter. It's such a sticky, awful, complicated situation, and I can kind of sympathize with both sides. It's unfair to Snyder that the rug was pulled out from under him when he left for completely understandable reasons. Unless the studio would have done what they did after seeing his cut anyway, asked him to step down and hire someone else to fix the movie because of their ever-reactionary strategy with the DCEU. The reshoots should have been done by someone he wanted, and the movie should have been finished as close to his way as his team could manage without him. Now, to be fair, it's unclear whether Snyder had a say in who replaced him, and his wife, producer Deborah Snyder, did approve Whedon, she says, because she and her family were distracted by what was happening at home, and they weren't focused on the movie understandably. But it's also understandable that Warners was concerned that more BVS wouldn't sell well, given the historical 70% box office drop between the first two weeks of its theatrical release, not to mention its overall disappointing take and its critical maligning. Making some changes seems reasonable. Trying to make a whole other film to try to clone the Avengers with Whedon at the helm at the last minute? That's ridiculous. The official company line was that Wheaton was just brought in to put the finishing touches on the film. And being a competent director with two hugely successful Avengers movies under his belt, he was certainly the most qualified choice for the job, I suppose, if you could trust that's actually what he'd do. I have to assume Warners asked him to do the job he did, more or less. Not that he took over and decided to basically remake the whole movie with the casting characters they had. Unless he convinced the studio that's what had to be done when he came aboard. There's a lot of controversy surrounding his behavior on set and the way he treated the cast and crew, which I won't get into, but if his ego was looming large, I suppose that's possible. If he simply did the job he was hired to do, he was between a rock and a hard place. Forgetting the gossip, and without all the information, I guess this is a place where there's still a little mystery, it's hard for me to blame either director as much as the studio for the galvanized Mr. Potato Head Justice League turned into. It's a mashing together of two creatively opposed director's styles, one who is passionate about the material, but does not understand the fundamentals of storytelling and how to communicate his ideas, and the other whose heart couldn't have been in the material. 
who is all about character-driven stories, but isn't a chameleon and doesn't know how to not leave his DNA on everything he touches. It isn't that Whedon came in with a different vision. He was trying to salvage a piece he didn't believe in, in less than two months. If the studio said, take what Snyder has done and make it light, fun, coherent, appealing to families, inoffensive, and, you know, like what you did at Marvel... That's impossible. You can't take the antithesis to an idea and turn it into that idea. Just like you can't take an already filmed Suicide Squad movie and make it Guardians of the Galaxy. Thus, most of the movie gets rewritten and reshot from the ground up, and the look and tone are totally overhauled, but not polished because there's no time. Since BVS, Warner's pivots massively every time a movie doesn't perform the way it was expected to, and it turns movies in production into amorphous bastardizations. Even if it had ended on a cliffhanger, as the Snyder Cut apparently does, I think the studio should have let Snyder's team done whatever pickups they needed, release the film as it was, and just cut their losses. They've been delusional in thinking they can take a really specific creative vision and keep morphing it into something else without releasing a totally confused, poorly paced mess. I'm saying this in hindsight after seeing a whopping $300 million movie only make $650 million at the box office. With advertising costs, it probably barely made its money back. But Warner spent so much trying to salvage it when they could have just released what they had and ignored it moving forward. And that's what they basically did anyway. We're still in this confusing pseudo-DCEU, with characters born out of the Snyderverse initially, but retooled later in their own movies, like Wonder Woman and Aquaman, so that the continuity hardly matters. And it's nice that it's dropped the focus on the shared universe in favor of just telling stories, but it's awkward having this sort of continuity that never felt like a true living and breathing world. With the exception of Wonder Woman 1984, it kind of feels like we're starting over every time, especially because so many of these things have been team-building movies. With, may I add, multiple cuts of some movies, like BVS and Suicide Squad, that add to the confusion of what even counts. Lobotomizing Justice League, no matter how incomprehensible it might have been, it can't be more nonsensical than BVS, right? Right? only served to create a different sort of mess, and it turned into something nobody was particularly enthusiastic about. The crowd that really loves what Snyder makes isn't the majority, and they wouldn't fill movie theaters around America all by themselves, but that's at least an audience. This is yet another case, and man am I sick of these with superhero movies, of a studio trying to please everyone and ultimately pleasing no one. So it's hard to take a movie like this on its own terms, because it's difficult to define them. There's what Snyder was after that Whedon is still stuck with, and then what Whedon is trying to accomplish. When you only have this cut, it's hard to say what Snyder's goals are, because so little of what he did is still here. I wanted to look at this as its own piece, as much as that's possible, before seeing the Snyder cut, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about even the differences I know about, unless it's really relevant, or any more of the multi-film epic Snyder was still trying to build with this. But what he clearly starts with, generally, is an alien invasion, triggered by the death of Superman, Batman pulling a team together from the metahumans he learned about from the files he stole from Lex, introducing the new gods into the mythology, and the resurrection of Superman. All Whedon seems interested in, because of his own sensibilities, studio mandate, or a combination, is forcing these characters to feel more like the quintessential versions, marveling it up, as it were, by injecting a lot of humor, no matter how shoved in and out of place it might feel, and having a simple, logical progression of scenes. 
So forgetting the creators involved and just looking at the piece as its own entity, what does it want to be? Simply put, not a train wreck. It's not trying to be much of anything, so much as wanting to not be Snyder's film. It looks like a school science project that a kid doesn't start making until the day before it's due, who slaps something mildly competent together but doesn't take any risks, like he just throws together a solar system out of some foam balls and coat hangers and hopes against hope for a passing grade. But also, maybe kind of thinks space is stupid, and there's a hint of sarcasm and condescension in his solar system. I don't know, maybe he makes the last four letters in Uranus a lot bigger than the first two. Because under Wheaton's pen and direction, these characters, especially Batman and Superman, kind of seem like parodies to me. Some of that is, perhaps, overcompensation. Wheaton doesn't understand the Snyder versions any better than I do. And honestly, I don't know that Snyder gets them either. So Whedon genericifies them, distilling them down to their basic building blocks. They're two-dimensional, and the movie doesn't have its own take on them beyond some earlier character work Whedon is stuck with. If he can't ignore it, he'll give a character a thin arc and breeze past it as fast as he can. So Superman has just always been the stalwart icon who always does the right thing. Batman is just an eccentric, rich, antisocial guy who ostensibly doesn't play well with others. God, I hate his response to, what's your superpower, I'm rich? There are only two acceptable answers to that question if you're Batman. Drive and determination, or I'm Batman. He's degenerated into Super Friends Batman, except now he's self-deprecating. Wonder Woman is wise, principled, inspiring, basically Superman in a woman's body, except she's still pining away for Steve Trevor, who we saw die a couple months earlier in her movie, the only thing DC had put out at this point that didn't seem horribly compromised by the studio made me feel anything at all and felt like an actual movie somebody wanted to make. It's also weird because he's been dead almost 100 years. Diana is still in hiding just because that's what she was doing last movie, and Whedon seems to think that's as lame as I do, so he gives her a flimsy arc about learning to let go. She works with a superhero team, seems to sort of fill a motherly role by the end, with her I work with children line, maybe, and something, something, now she's the public symbol of heroism she always should have been. I'll get more to those arcs a little later, not that there's all that much more left to say. Justice League is a pizza loaded with toppings somebody decided were gross and didn't go together. Beets, Twizzlers, croutons, bits of fish sticks, all kinds of weird stuff. Took them off and then gave it to someone else to put more conventional toppings on. So now it's got a little pepperoni and a little sausage and a few black olives, but what's mostly left is the cheese. And there's a lot of cheese. I still can't believe this movie is a full two hours because it's the opposite of BVS in pacing. I think a lot of it is weirdly superfluous, but not for the same reason so much of BVS is. That movie has scene after disconnected scene of ostensibly complex intrigue and social commentary that never amounts to anything, and a lot of which don't make sense together. Most of the scenes in this movie follow, but it's built on a faulty premise. So the first half is a waste of time, and the second half is the easiest resurrection in superhero history. And that's counting all the ones I remember from the Arrowverse. And a supervillain takedown lacking in any suspense or sense of urgency, with almost no substantive character progression or ideas. If the Green Lantern movie from 2011 is the adaptation of that property I might have expected circa 2005, this is the Justice League movie of 1997. On first watch, I found it surprisingly not boring. It was superheroes beating a supervillain in a story so routine it might as well have been written for the cutscenes in a fighting game. 
And there are fight scenes that are shot that way. BVS is a slog because I keep waiting for the titular event to happen and it thinks it's so important while I'm struggling to understand why I'm even watching a lot of scenes. Justice League oddly moves at a clip because there's action throughout. Not to say it's always great action, but, you know, there's fights and chases and stuff. And before I know it, I'm already in the third act. Because even though so much of the first hour is Batman recruiting characters he should have recruited already and Steppenwolf grabbing up mother boxes, there almost is no second act. It feels like it's an hour and a half long, tops. But again, that's just on first viewing. It's duller on repeat watches because there is zero rewatch value. All roads were supposed to be leading here with this shared universe. It's fifth in the order of DCEU movies. There are four years between the start of this shared universe, Man of Steel, and what's supposed to be its Avengers. Just like there were four years between Iron Man and Avengers. In fact, Marvel only got one more movie out than DC did in that time span. And Justice League ends up being the most disposable and unmemorable movie out of everything they've made. I can't imagine what the landscape of the MCU would look like if Avengers had been that unmemorable. Even the bad movies, like Suicide Squad, gave people something they might care about moving forward, like Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Granted, her god-awful Birds of Prey movie didn't perform well, but she's well-liked in the role and is still playing it moving forward. This wasn't a culmination of things. It was an obligation. A movie that should have done the opposite of the Avengers, gotten audiences excited to see solo adventures with the new Justice League characters. I still say you could have started with a team movie and not done any solo movies until after that. And yes, these characters were all introduced in BVS, but strictly in a cameo capacity. It didn't have to rely on the novelty of seeing them finally come together, but they're also underdeveloped, get so little screen time, and everyone but Cyborg gets cringeworthy, corny dialogue, so it's no wonder people didn't get excited about them. Like, I get that Flash is scatterbrained and unfocused, but what is that whole thing about showing their bellies when Superman comes back to life? If there was a standout, it was Aquaman, whose solo movie was a big hit, but the success of that film is something of a mystery to me. I suspect it had more to do with the fun, bombastic advertising than it did with this movie. When I did hear anyone talking about Justice League while it was in theaters, they tended to say, eh, Aquaman was fun, much like the isolated praise Ben Affleck got after BVS. So maybe Aquaman developed a fan base despite the dismal failure of the movie itself. I'm not saying the DCEU should have followed Marvel's playbook. Far from it. It absolutely should have stood alone and played to the strengths of its stable of characters. It started out kind of trying to do that, except it concentrated more on aping the tone of the Nolan Batman movies than carving out its own, based on the source material, instead of what's worked for Warners in the past. I promise I'll get back to the movie itself again in a minute, but if I could go back in time and give Warner's executives three pieces of advice before they try a shared universe after Green Lantern tanks, based on what we all know now, it would be this. Number one, new blood. Don't hire anyone to write, direct, score, storyboard, or do anything major who has worked on your superhero movies before. No Goyer, no Snyder, no Zimmer, as much as I love the Man of Steel score. No one. Two, if Man of Steel is polarizing, go with a different director. Don't make whoever that is the architect of your universe. And three, don't copy Marvel. But don't go so far the other way, you become something so counterintuitive it doesn't resonate with people. Marvel doesn't have the monopoly on fun and humorous, 
And the idea that fun is the identity of the other guys we have to avoid is simple-minded and ridiculous. Serious and fun are also not mutually exclusive, and you knew that when you made the Nolan Batman movies. The answer, of course, was never to make Justice League or any DC movies into Marvel movies. Arguably, some of its more recent efforts have taken more pages out of that playbook and actually succeeded with it. I think because movies like Aquaman and Shazam really are fun and audiences can follow their stories, and because superhero and Marvel are synonymous with general audiences to the point where if it looks Marvelish enough, people will see them and either don't realize it's not Marvel, there are some people that have that, or don't care because it's close enough. But time will tell as to how sustainable a model that is for DC in the future. And even if those movies continue to perform on their own, they're not building the overall brand recognition they want, that Justice League should have given them. Once Snyder lays the foundation, what do you do? Very often, after even a bad movie, I'll say, this world isn't unsalvageable. Sonic? Didn't like that movie? Not unsalvageable. Ninja Turtles 2014? Not unsalvageable. That second movie could have been a lot better. Man of Steel? Certainly not unsalvageable. BVS? <laughs> Even if Whedon could have started from scratch, I don't know how you get around some of what Snyder laid down. A flashpoint or crisis that soft reboots the universe, or just ignoring what you don't like, seem like the only real choices. Whedon's Justice League sort of tries the first thing, but it can't avoid callbacks and building on events and mythology that were already established, so it half-heartedly tries to retcon characterizations while leaving most of the history intact. And that creates an awkward situation for me in discussing it, because I don't know where I stand with the thing. I can't just talk about it as a sequel, because it wishes it wasn't one. But I can't just talk about it on its own, because it's still very much a sequel. Taking it strictly as its own movie, it's terrible, because its characters are thinly drawn, its villain is the most stock video game bad guy ever put in a movie, visually and in characterization, and that's including stuff like the Scorpion King in the 2000s Mummy movies. But as a sequel to BVS, it's even worse, because the beginning of this movie doesn't match the end of the last one. The sudden, more chipper tone makes it feel like it's in a totally different world most of the time, and it thinks Snyder's earlier movies are stupid, making fun of them at every turn. For example, Superman's resurrection isn't dramatic, tragic, or even scary. Batman and Wonder Woman have a big debate about whether to bring Superman back, and for a minute, it's treated like there must be huge consequences to this, whether it's worth it or not. Flash is worried Superman will come back Pet cemetery style. Aquaman says, you lose something when you die. Snyder's version was supposed to be built around the return of Superman, but Whedon gets it done in a scene. Superman freaks out for a minute, because he's confused, ready to kill everything around him, maybe because he was at peace, as Alfred suggests. Certainly not because he doesn't know who he is. He goes to where his statue used to be, for no reason I understand, and he starts quoting Batman's machismo dialogue from BVS back at him as soon as he sees him. He sees Lois, because of course she's still the freaking key and the only thing grounding Superman, and he's quickly himself again. Of all the things you could have retconned, Whedon. And better, because suddenly he likes being a Superman and saving people. And Whedon keeps going, making fun of the Do You Bleed line. Not only having Superman comically say it when he's holding Batman by his jaw 20 feet in the air, it's still amazing what Batman can withstand in that Batsuit, as if he's punishing Batman for the idiocy of BVS, but 
actually using the big trailer fodder line from one of the most commercially hyped films in history as set up for a joke about Batman lying on a lawn bleeding. I can't ignore the events of last movie because they inform this one too much, and not just in snarky callbacks. Lois as Superman's world is still a major plot point and his main motivation. Ugh. Jonathan's picture is still in the casket, buried with him, when he was lying there at the funeral for anyone in that house to figure out his identity. Wonder Woman has still been operating in the shadows for almost a hundred years. Wayne Manor still looks like it was set on fire and abandoned for no reason we're told about, but the movie wants me to pretend like a lot of things happened differently here, both in events and interpretation. And after spending the better part of a month analyzing it, not understanding most of what I was looking at, I sympathize. Wheaton was definitely between a rock and a hard place, but I can't totally dismiss the incongruities because it cherry-picks what counts and what doesn't. Why is Gordon suddenly here, when he was nowhere to be found in the last movie, where it would have been great to get his perspective on Batman's new level of criminal brutality? He's here for no reason except to get more Batman stuff in here. He just lets the Justice League know parademons abducted scientists from Star Labs so they can have their first bout with Steppenwolf as he's interrogating and killing those scientists for information on the mother box. Batman could have gotten that from a news report, but it's made worse by the fact that Gordon seems clueless about how off the rails Batman just was weeks or months ago. He talks to Detective Crispus Allen in police headquarters about a kidnapping. And, by the way, I only know it's Allen because his name is in the subtitles. That's a major character from Greg Rucka's Gotham Central, and that one scene made me wish I was watching an adaptation of that instead. When Allen hands Gordon a child's drawing of a parademon and says it looks like Batman, Gordon says, Do you think he fights criminals for 20 years here, and then he goes to Metropolis and kidnaps eight people? So you just don't know he tried to kill Superman, do you? J.K. Simmons is great casting, but it's hard to enjoy him in this movie because Gordon is in the reality I wish this movie actually took place in, and I can't suspend my disbelief to see it that way. He talks as if Gotham and Metropolis weren't even right next to each other. Can we please just stop making movies in this pseudo-continuity and follow him back to whatever dimension he comes from? And side note, how long ago was Batman a totally different character, trying to destroy peace on Earth if you believe this movie? I have no idea how far after BVS this takes place, and it has no sense of passage of time. Bruce grows a beard between the opening scene on the roof with the Parademon and tracking down Aquaman. That opening scene where he lands on a different roof than the one he started with, but that guy he interrogated is somehow standing behind him. Batman's lucky Steppenwolf didn't have all three boxes and ruled the world already by the time he got around to looking up Flash. Wasn't Batman going to start looking for those metahumans for his army right away at the end of BVS? Remember how the bell had been rung and an alien invasion seemed impending and urgent? Batman doesn't start talking to any of the future Justice Leaguers until parademons start showing up, and he doesn't really need to bring in anyone but Flash, who would be a natural person for him to go talk to based on his giving Batman the premonition about this very threat, which he still, by the way, has never told anyone about. Even if he'd never met Wonder Woman, she still would have gotten involved because of the Amazon's warning flame. Cyborg is only alive because of a mother box, so he would have to be involved, and Mira tells Aquaman it's his sacred duty to stop Steppenwolf for Atlantis. The team could have been formed and already fighting Steppenwolf 10-15 minutes in, easy. Everyone's acting like Superman was not only the beacon of hope Batman calls him, but the only thing holding the human race together. 
Batman who has completely changed his tune on Superman to the point where it's impossible to understand his beef with him in the first place. I mean, if he was the thread keeping society from tearing itself apart, as Steppenwolf suggests, how didn't he recognize that in BVS and weigh it against the 1% chance he's our enemy? There was apparently a 100% chance that Superman's death would plunge the whole world into chaos. But I mean, we're just told that. I don't see how things are much worse than they were when he was around. There's bad guys kicking fruit in the opening, so I guess it's total anarchy on a level the world has never seen. Justice League gives us comic book world without Superman, and it's totally unearned. But then I'll be real surprised if the Snyder Cut doesn't do the same thing. It's not like he's consistent between movies either, or even inside his own movies, so that'd just be par for the course. Suicide Squad also retroactively treats the posthumous Superman like he was Christopher Reeve. I said Justice League is built on an unbelievable premise, and that's both because of the stupid Steppenwolf thing set up last movie, and because the end of that movie is ignored here. Steppenwolf's whole reason for showing up now makes no sense, and most of that is on BVS. But Justice League makes it worse. Steppenwolf is an entitled child, who thinks taking over the Earth is his right, because he almost did it thousands of years ago. He also says that by creating the unity on our planet, he'll take his rightful place among the new gods. So, what's this God of War reject been doing all this time? It's maybe the greatest why now question in all of superhero movie cinema. The only thing stopping him from sending his parademons back to find the mother boxes, which they do pretty swiftly, by the way, is apparently the fact that there's a Kryptonian around. As I said in the BVS review, I don't know how he even knows about Superman in the first place, or what powers he has on Earth, because, again, he wouldn't have those on Krypton, but that is apparently the deterrent, when Superman has only been a public superhero for two years. And what's so special about Earth, anyway? Has he failed at trying the Unity thing on a bunch of other planets, too? Are the three mother boxes on Earth the only ones he has access to? If they are, why didn't he come back a long time ago and at least take them somewhere else? There was literally nothing stopping him from finding them, and nothing beyond what stopped them last time to stop him this time. Steppenwolf is a henchman made the main villain of DC's huge event team movie, and not in the way Bane was arguably a henchman in The Dark Knight Rises. At least he seemed like the main bad guy for most of that movie, had a lot of presence, spouted some interesting pontifications, at least before they ended up not culminating into much, but this generic dollar store action figure doesn't have a cool angle on any ideological issues. He's not terrifying, he's not fun evil, and I keep forgetting he's even in the movie because he's entirely CG, looks unfinished, and has a design with no excuse not to just be a guy in makeup. It feels like he's not even a character, like the movie has no actual villain, just MacGuffins. And I don't care that he's huge. He's hardly ever on screen with another character when we see his face, so there should be no uncanny valley there. Just put some prosthetics on his head. I have that issue to a much smaller degree with Thanos, but I get why that choice was made there. This is that Green Lantern thing all over again. This is another reason you can't get away with taking this material and making it a standalone movie. 
Steppenwolf was always a counterintuitive villain to carry a film by himself, but Snyder's movie was supposed to be the first of a three-part story. It was building to Darkseid. Despite Steppenwolf's for Darkseid line, this movie gives no indication it ever wants to do anything else with the New Gods. There was a New Gods movie planned, but I don't know if that's still supposed to happen, and this movie does nothing to make me want the Justice League to deal with them again. I would pay real money to know how well the Steppenwolf action figure is sold. When this comes out, Marvel is a year away from finally unveiling Thanos, who will become one of the most popular superhero movie villains of all time. And despite the missteps I think were taken there, he was a powerful and memorable presence. Meanwhile, Justice League gives us a lackey and doesn't even tease Darkseid's image like Avengers did with Thanos in the after credits scene. If it weren't for the Lex Deathstroke cameo in the end credits here, because all that we're too good for those pretenses gone and this is just a Marvel movie now, I might have thought Warners had already written Justice League off as a franchise and just wanted to quietly put it to bed. The movie cares about Steppenwolf about as much as I do. Whedon injects him with a little personality, like he's one of the demons in a Buffy episode that sees himself superior to humans. For example, when Cyborg's father stands up to him and he says, Finally! One who doesn't whine! But the movie knows he's as lame as he is. If you're rewriting and reshooting a lot of his stuff along with everything else, why not have as much fun with him as possible, instead of making him a boring cross between Loki and Malekith? Make him a little more sadistic, have him toy with his prey a little, or just make him really freaking scary. Let him kill more people, up the stakes, make me feel like the world is really about to end. Heck, Doomsday did a better job of that, and he mostly attacked an empty city. You've already got a popular song opening your movie, why not pay for the license to some songs by the band Steppenwolf? Might as well go straight up on the nose with it. Put Superman's triumphant big fan of justice entrance to Magic Carpet Ride. You might as well use more popular music considering Danny Elfman had to score this at the last minute, and it shows. It's as even a score as BVS's, except it's almost all orchestral, traditional superhero action stuff, and I liked some of the tracks in the BVS soundtrack. At its best, the score here is generic, and at its worst, it's downright inappropriate. Yeah, let's further confuse the tone by throwing both Elfman's Batman theme and William's Superman theme in there just because we can. And, I think, to compensate for how far removed both characters were from the iconic versions this movie knows general audiences want to return to. And also knows it's not achieving. I don't think iconic themes written for one version should generally be used for another anyway, because they're part of a totally other piece. But it's not even tastefully handled here. I think that's another element the movie is using to debase the original material. It's saying, hey Snyder, this is what Superman and Batman are supposed to sound like. We hear the Williams theme in the fight after Superman is resurrected and fights the League. The least Superman thing this suddenly stalwart near parody of Superman does is punctuated with ba 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 if that were done in, say, Superman 3, when Superman goes bad, but it's like a twisted minor key version, okay. But that choice here strikes me as unprofessional. I don't like the direction Snyder took this franchise either, but I don't want to watch a two-hour incontinuity joke about it. And while we're on music, let's talk a minute about that Leonard Cohen song in the opening credits. Whedon claims he chose that song, but I think he either went for something he thought was Snyder-esque, if that's true, 
Or again, he's making fun of Snyder. If that was in Snyder's movie, I probably wouldn't think anything of it. It calls back to the Bob Dylan opening from Watchmen, which I still say is the greatest superhero movie opening titles of all time, and the lyrics are appropriate to the situation if only I bought the pseudo-social commentary. Everybody knows the dice are loaded, everybody rolls with their fingers crossed, everybody knows the war is over, everybody knows the good guys lost, everybody knows the fight was fixed, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows. It's supposedly about the shattering disillusionment that justice doesn't always prevail. Crime does sometimes pay, and it's always the poor who suffer the most consequences. Which is the big thing that begs the question as to whether Superman can exist in today's cynical world. BVS was kind of about the unfair reality of people in power, with Lex's obsession with that flimsy idea of the paradox about absolute good and absolute power, and that's inherent in that plot. A filthy rich tycoon had the means, both monetarily and because of government connections, to literally destroy hope, and another filthy rich tycoon misguidedly also tried to kill him, not believing he was the symbol of hope. But, as I talked about at length in that review, I don't buy that the world believed in Superman the way we're told it does at the beginning of that movie, and I don't believe they'd go back to that blind faith after a lot of them turned on him and think he's a murderer just because of the self-sacrifice. And most of the rest of the movie instantly loses any of the Snyder flavor from that credit sequence, so it does a terrible job of setting the tone. This story, like Avengers, is about several heroes who don't naturally play well together being forced by a crisis to work together and discovering they're more effective together than alone and despite their differences, only without an interesting ideological debate between the heroes and with nowhere near the character development that movie had, even with its new characters who got the least amount of screen time. Hawkeye is mind-controlled most of that movie, and he's better drawn and more compelling than Flash or Aquaman. The focus is mainly on two of the heroes, like Avengers in Batman and Wonder Woman, which is good. It's not six protagonists constantly trying to hog the screen, like in Suicide Squad, but it does give everyone a pretty flimsy and underdeveloped arc that are arbitrarily resolved by the end just because these characters saved the world. Man, it is so weird comparing one movie to another film that I think is superior and does it better, and both written by the same guy. One woman decides to operate in the open like Superman by the end, despite ignoring every opportunity to be the inspiration Batman says she should be until they've defeated Steppenwolf. By the end, she's out on the streets interacting with little girls like she's Linda Carter. She says she's a believer in her obligatory action scene at the beginning, where she stops radical extremists who come out after Superman's death. That is maybe the most awkward line delivery in the movie. Like someone told Gal Gadot to say something, and she's like, What's that mean? And Whedon, or whoever shot that scene, I'm sure that's a Whedon scene, is like, I don't know, sounds good, go with it. What does she believe in at this point? Just generically doing the right thing or in Superman? I don't understand how working with a team of heroes inspired her to change her tack any more than anything else she's been through, which is made weirder, of course, retroactively by Wonder Woman 1984. I think seeing Steve Trevor one more time and being forced to get over him to save the world and then learning she can't have what she most wants, like Maxwell Lord tries to force for himself through dangerous magic, 
would have gotten her to this place before a speech with Batman about how she's a hypocrite for telling him to get over Superman's death and then fighting a video game boss in a fight that no one besides the League is around to witness. Flash is socially awkward, moves at a different speed than everyone else, and so has difficulty making connections with people, which I do like. So he joins the League just because he wants friends. His dad, wrongly imprisoned for killing his mother, tells him to stop wasting his time trying to get him out and to go live his life. In a cringy line delivery from Ezra Miller, an actor I'm trying so hard to like, but just don't, he says, please don't ever say that to me again. I get why he's upset that his dad wants him to give up and never see him again, but he comes off whiny. And when he's not doing that, he's kind of an insufferable fanboy. I think he's often supposed to be a stand-in for the audience. Look how cool all this stuff is. Uh, is the bat cave. But it's really forced and it's just more overcompensation. He's occasionally funny to me, like when he says he's never done battle, he just pushes people and runs away. I like the timing of Miller's comedy there. But it's usually comic relief that's trying too hard. Like his tripping all over himself whenever he's around Wonder Woman. And it's especially important to nail the comedy-drama balance with him when the same character is in a TV show that people like, and it's got a better take on the material than this. But whiny as he is at the beginning, I don't have to worry about that for long, because it doesn't come up again the whole movie, until the end, when somehow his arc is magically concluded, after saving the world also. Now he has a job at a police crime lab, and he's living his life like his dad told him to. Kind of. Although, that's another place he can keep working to get his father out of prison, so I think it might not be him living his life at all. There's no through line from the first scene with his dad to the one at the end. It just happens. I assume Bruce got him the job, just like Bruce saves the Kent farm for Martha. And I don't know why he needed Superman to come back to life before he did that, but whatever. What was the opportunity for change that made Flash listen to his father's advice, but find a compromise, if it is a compromise? Aquaman just wants to be left alone and not told what to do, as he's running from his Atlantean heritage. He initially refuses to help Batman because it's not his problem, but begrudgingly agrees to join the team when Steppenwolf steals the box from the Atlanteans, which is so well hidden, Aquaman reaches it in like five seconds, diving from shore around where he lives, and he meets Mira, who tells him it's his responsibility to stop Steppenwolf, because his mother is presumed dead. No discussion of the present king or queen, nothing about Orm or anything we'll get in Aquaman's solo movie. They even have to make a pocket of air so they can talk when they'll be able to just speak underwater in his film. And there's also no explanation as to why the whole of Atlantis apparently trusts Aquaman to do this rather than sending an army like they did the first time, when all the kingdoms came together to stop Steppenwolf. I guess for the same reason Bruce Wayne doesn't just call in the National Guard. There's no good reason only superheroes can stop this threat. But it's a superhero movie, so heaven forbid we have any law enforcement involved. Usually the excuse is a surprise ambush, like in Avengers, and at least there, the police try to do something. Here, the parademons are all over the news, and every government in the world has time to get troops on standby for a possible invasion. Anyway... Loner Aquaman comes to appreciate his new friends after showing some vulnerability, albeit in an awkward and contrived way when he expresses his fear of dying before he feels a part of either of the homes he's never fully embraced, and he stops, I guess, living by his mantra of the strongest man is strongest alone. A mantra that I think is maybe given a little bit of credence by the turbulent production of the film itself. And he does that just because, I guess, Wonder Woman 
leaves her lasso just lying around wherever. There's no reference or resolution to the Atlantis stuff toward the beginning. The idea of the man of one world raised in another, adopted by a new family of misfits that understands him, is fine, but it feels tacked on, and like most of the character stuff, rushed. Aquaman has the most consistent personality of the group. I'm not a fan of the bro-dude tattooed take Snyder invented, but Momoa's go-with-the-flow attitude is infectious, and he doesn't seem confused as to what movie he's in, like some of the others. Cyborg is, ironically, the most intriguing and best-defined new character in the film to me. I have never liked Cyborg as a founding member of the Justice League. That's a Jeff Johns thing that drives me crazy. And you know, I can't believe I haven't said this before now, but I do blame New 52 for a lot of this. If that edgy, early 90s Marvel-esque initiative had never happened, I wonder if Snyder would have been involved in this. Anyway, Cyborg just doesn't fit in with these other iconic, larger-than-life personalities. He's inherently too conflicted, insecure, and unstable, which is why he's a Teen Titans character in the comics. And he also just doesn't fit with any traditional character in a Greek or Roman pantheon like the others do. Cyborg is the kid who might be more machine than human, trying to find himself in all the programming, is a modern metaphor for the teenage experience, and it's not the timeless notion that Superman or even Batman is. One of these things just isn't like the others, and it always struck me as a way to force the Justice League to just be more physically diverse. You don't have to grab a teenager from another corner of the DC Universe to do that. Put in the Green Lantern Jon Stewart, like the animated Justice League series. I liked him a lot in that show. And it's weird there's no Green Lantern here, by the way, given all that Unite the Seven viral marketing that, if memory serves, went all the way to before BVS even came out. We know now, and spoilers for the Snyder Cut, that Martian Manhunter was originally supposed to be revealed in this movie. So now I'm assuming that was supposed to be the seventh. And that's cool, I really like Martian Manhunter, I just wish Cyborg was axed in favor of Green Lantern with Martian Manhunter. But then, if I had been Whedon, I maybe wouldn't have had that Easter egg reference to the Lanterns in the flashback during Wonder Woman's scripted-sounding history lesson about the groups that came together to stop Steppenwolf the first time. She says they had otherworldly help, and then we see a Green Lantern. Why didn't we have that help this time? Like, where's the core? This is kind of a big deal. But I like Ray Fisher's understated, passive-aggressively stoic performance as the kid who should have died in a tragic accident, but his father, dabbling in mad science, won't let him. I like that line about how his father is the real monster. There's some real pathos there, and he's the one character I started to genuinely feel something for. He's still thinly drawn, and his arc is arrived at too easily, like everybody else. At first, he hates his father for bringing him back to life a la Robocop. He doesn't know if he's still Victor Stone or some deformed perversion of himself, and he can't control everything he does because the mother box, which Dr. Stone needed to bring him back, is changing him into a weapon it can use. I kind of like the idea that the very thing keeping him alive is part of the deadly planet-ending MacGuffin the team forms to stop. It's a decent argument for why he should be involved with this particular version of the Justice League, and I want to like the parallels made between him and Wonder Woman as people who are held back by personal loss and have to learn to move on. And with Superman, who has also come back from the dead and may have been at peace himself, but also, like Victor, comes to find he likes being alive because of the sense of purpose he gets in being a hero. That's actually a pretty genuine moment between them at the end, when they both acknowledge, I don't want to die. 
Those parallels are razor thin and hardly explored, but the life and death motif Cyborg brings is the closest thing to a thematic core I can seek my teeth into, beyond the obvious teamwork and power motifs, and his problem is solved a little too easily. Once the mother boxes are gone, there's no further discussion about his identity, and because everything turns out okay, he and his dad seem fine now. I walked into this movie dreading Cyborg, and walked out thinking he was the only new character I might be interested to see a solo movie of. My whole world was turned upside down, like with BVS, except this time because of the thing I actually liked. Superman has no character arc, beyond coming back from the dead disoriented and violent for five minutes, coming to terms with the second coming in record time, and with none of the Jesus allegory of the Snyder movies whatsoever. He sort of serves the deus ex machina function Captain Marvel does in Avengers Endgame, if one of the Avengers also made a big deal out of how important a role model she was and that she should lead the team. Besides believing they don't have enough firepower, Batman insists on using the mother box to bring Superman back because he thinks Superman is more human than he is and is the right person to lead the team. In that insanely unsuspenseful moment where Flash has to touch the box at precisely the moment it's also touching the liquid. But Superman doesn't lead the team. He fights the League, he snaps out of his rage when he sees Lois, he walks around the farm for a while, says hi to his mom, then I guess spends more time doing something to recover until he shows up at just the moment he's needed to save some people we never see in a building in Russia, in a city that seems to be totally deserted except for that one token family that's sprinkled throughout the movie I know nothing about. Designed by Whedon to manufacture sympathy from the audience by creating a sense there could actually be civilian casualties. It doesn't work. I find myself just wondering why we keep cutting to these people and if they're the entire population of Russia. It was maybe better when cities were just conveniently empty, honestly. Superman isn't supposed to change. He's there to give the team something to strive for, while he's confident and smiling and seems to actually enjoy being a superhero. He's completely out of character. It turns out this Superman has the same thing with human beings that I did with him as a kid. He doesn't care about anyone until he dies. Now I wish he died at the end of Man of Steel. Snapped his own neck for some reason. Then he might have been awesome in BVS. And then we get to Batman, who is all over the place. The movie has no idea who he is now or what he's really about. And like Lex in BVS, the only way I can see him as consistent is by chalking all of his behavior up to insanity. He has to be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He's simultaneously racked with guilt over the death of Superman, and also totally laid back, like he does not give a crap. And some of that comes from Ben Affleck's, I think, flippant attitude in the reshoots. Poor guy. He has no sense of urgency in getting his team together before Steppenwolf gets the mother boxes. He's a completely incompetent leader, like when he lets Steppenwolf steal the one mother box they have from the Kryptonian ship just a few blocks behind them while he's lying on the grass like an idiot after Superman drops him. Yeah, I get that he's got a serious injury, which he miraculously heals from between scenes, but really, you didn't leave anyone back to guard the mother box or put it in a less obvious and conspicuous place? If Steppenwolf knows anything about Kryptonians at all, eh, maybe he'd check the scout ship with the resurrection liquid in it. The only hints of a familiar Batman, or even the one we got last movie, are his speech about how he didn't go and have a life like Superman, which makes Clark more human than he is, and his willingness to isolate himself and lose friends to do what he thinks will get the mission done. When he pushes Wonder Woman to lead the team, 
I guess. Like Superman, she never really does that, and I don't think pointing out her hypocrisy and telling him to move on when she's still operating in the shadows because of Steve's death motivates her to go along with this plan to bring Superman back. She begrudgingly shows up for the resurrection, saying she's just there for Superman. Batman's arc is about learning to work with people, so yeah, he's supposed to be bad at this, but he never becomes a better leader after watching his plans backfire. He just kind of does things, so people get mad at him, and he nearly sacrifices his own life twice, I think just because he hates himself for trying to kill Superman. And then everything works out at the end. Aquaman's right when he says toward the beginning that Bruce is out of his mind, and the only reason it all works out is because he's the good guy. And I didn't even mention the fact that he cannot stop telling people his secret identity for no reason. That was also a problem in Jeff Johns' New 52 Justice League run. At least last movie, he was supposed to be kind of the bad guy until the light switch moment where he and Superman seem like best friends. Here, Batman is a horrible role model for his fellow heroes and children watching and everyone. It kind of feels like he always wins just because he's rich. Remember, that's his superpower. His team is totally dysfunctional and only exists because of him, but he's willing to let Superman kill him when he's resurrected, which is stupid, because if his big gun doesn't work, just seeing Lois... Give me a second, my eyes just rolled in the back of my head again. Now the remaining four of them have to figure out how to take out a loose cannon Superman without kryptonite. And he tries to commit suicide for the greater good again in the Batmobile, instead of just coordinating with his team. He seems to have a death wish, but the movie never really talks about that, so I'm not sure. Any more than I am about whether Superman is looking for a way out when he unnecessarily sacrifices himself to kill Doomsday in BVS. The only person inspired by the Superman I saw last movie is Batman. But without Bruce, Doomsday couldn't have been stopped. He's the only reason Superman had kryptonite to kill the monster with. He just got lucky, sure, but his actions actually had nothing to do with why Superman died. He might have indirectly saved the world. I get it if he just hated himself for not believing in Superman in the first place, I guess, but a lot of the reason he pushes for the resurrection seems to be deeply personal and selfish. It's a sin he has to atone for. But he kind of already did that by saving the man's mother and helping him take down a big monster. So Bruce has to find a way to move on, just like Cyborg and Wonder Woman, except he doesn't because his plan works, with almost no hitch whatsoever except a personal injury that apparently wasn't that bad. You know, for a guy who's barely doing it now, as he says when Wonder Woman tells him he can't fight crime forever, he heals like Wolverine. This is the most insulting thing in the movie to me. The moral of the story seems to be irresponsible risks, playing God, and messing with nature always work out if your heart is in the right place. And I'm not even convinced Batman's is. Superman hasn't lost his soul in death, as Aquaman fears. In fact, he seems to have gained more of one. No one has to pay any price for his return from the dead. And under the pen of Joss Whedon, of all people, who has frequently made a massive story point in multiple continuities about the nature of mortality, how death cannot be taken lightly, and he constantly builds in some kind of awful trade-off when characters are resurrected. 
Spoilers for the Buffy Angel verse, he drives that point home hard in Buffy when Buffy wants to bring her mother back from the dead. In Angel, Fred's body is used by a god, but she herself never returns. The writing is as irresponsible as Batman's plan, but unfortunately, it didn't work out like everything does for Batman. The tragic price here was box office and mass disappointment from fans. It's interesting that the League is kind of divided down the middle by the sort of arcs they have. One half is about mortality, Cyborg, Superman, and Batman, two of which have died and come back to life, and the third, who is barely keeping his body and mind together and willing to die like Superman for the greater good. Yeah, at least in his mind. The other half is about becoming real heroes. Flash, who doesn't know what to do in a hostage situation until Bruce gives him the save one person speech, which I actually kind of like. Wonder Woman, who realizes she's just reacting and not being a leader. And Aquaman, who's too worried about being bossed around to help anyone but the people in his village. I wish something was done with that split. The thing that might bring them all together is that while half are motivated by different things than the other half, they're all getting a second chance in some way. That should be brought to the fore. I wonder if the movie even knows they're split up that way, because those sides don't line up together in the ethical debate about bringing Superman back. Cyborg sides with Batman, Aquaman with Wonder Woman, and Flash cast no vote, even though if they'd taken one, he would have been the tiebreaker. He's just kind of along for the ride, and I guess does what Batman says, because he's the de facto leader. And before we get to my rating, let's find out what some of the patrons had to say with tweet-length reviews. And like with BVS, there are quite a few. First, Caleb Braun. The theatrical cut of Justice League is not a movie. It is a Frankenstein monster thrown together to appear as if it is a film. The plot is incomprehensible, the acting is cheesy at best, and the VFX look pulled out of a PS3 game. The only redeeming factor is there are moments where a comic book Superman peeks through the ever-present psychopath from BVS. 1.5 out of 4. John Sandoval. After everything BVS set up, Justice League is a disappointment. Barely a movie, it's a stitched-together mess that appeals to no one. 1 out of 4. Saqib Tariq. After BVS, it's hard to have a Justice League movie work with little character setup. It clashes in style and tone too much, feels like a comic book movie that should have come out in the mid-2000s. The only positive is Cavill got a chance to play more of a comic book Superman in the third act, 1.5 out of 4. Ben Thompson, the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. So many mistakes like Batman being wet out of nowhere, talking to Gordon, or Aquaman's magic changing tattoos. That doesn't include the awful dialogue, cinematography, acting, and special effects. Even the score is awful. There is no way the Snyder Cut is worse than this. Zero out of four. Connor Nielsen, quite possibly the worst superhero movie ever slapped together. On every level, the theatrical version of Justice League is embarrassing. 0.5 out of 4. Nick Mana, while I personally don't dislike it as much as BVS and Suicide Squad, this is still a very poor movie. Not without some decent moments of levity, but nothing actually works. Nothing feels structured, earned, and you're not invested in these characters, so why would you care about them stopping another portal? Yawn, 1.5 out of 4. Malik Myers, it's not as pretentious as BVS, but it's every bit as incoherent, if not more so, and the conflicting tones caused by two polar opposite directors doesn't help. It's nice to see Cavill get to actually play Superman for the first time for the last 15 minutes of the film, but overall, this is a messy, half-hearted attempt at copying a success of Marvel's Avengers films with none of the compelling character development that makes those movies resonate with people. Zero out of four. 
Christian Ogden. One word describes this movie generic. It has a bland villain, cliche plot, and questionable CGI. But it also proved DC was willing to learn from past mistakes by having color, a couple of good performances, and enjoyable action in a dumb, fun kind of way. Not the Justice League movie we deserved, but a step in the right direction for a struggling franchise. 2.5 out of 4. Chewbacca's Lover. I liked it when it came out, didn't really think it was that bad. Super Billy. The shift in tone and color is welcome. There's some solid moments of character and humor along with good performances, particularly from Cavill, who makes a great Superman given the right material, minus an atrocious CGI mouth. But sadly, the film is a borderline disastrous patchwork, 2.25 out of 4. Victor. One of the blandest superhero movies in recent memory, and a clear example of why I'd rather watch an interesting failure over a lifeless success any day. Bag Studios. Haven't time nor desire to watch the film this week, but I know what I thought leaving the theater. How is Cap going to review this as an actual movie? As a BVS apologist, this movie drives me up the wall with constantly counterintuitive retcons and jarring clashes of tones. In a word, oof, 0.5 out of 4. And Kevin. Here's my review. Good. It's a good movie. Nothing more, nothing less. I have no further thoughts at this time. Three out of four. I don't know what's worse. An immature and nonsensical story that makes my brain explode trying to think about it, but that's really trying to be about something, pretentious as it might be, or a by-the-numbers grab-the-artifact plot with no pretense of importance or even intelligence, but which is coherent, wants to be fun, and at least sometimes lets his heroes actually be heroic. It's a toss-up. BVS takes a million years to get through, but everything about how it came together is so interesting to me. I can't stop thinking about it. Justice League isn't initially hard to sit through, but it feels like it loses substance with every viewing. And while there's more action, which should keep me at least pacified in a theme park sort of way, it often doesn't look very good. There's barely enough story to support the runtime, and I tend to forget it even exists for long stretches of time. So, call it a cop-out, but I'm forced to give the theatrical cut of Justice League the same score I gave BVS, a 1.5 out of 4, for mostly entirely different reasons. Well, folks, that's it. I am finally finished with my five straight weeks of analyzing DC Snyder movies, or at least four weeks of one movie and one week of a movie that professes to be a DC Snyder movie. I am fascinated to see the Snyder Cut next week. This, of course, immediately dates this video, but we're going to be doing a watch party next Friday and a spoiler cast on Sunday, so look forward to that if you're watching this just as this review comes out. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Really appreciate it. It's time now for the ranking, and I really don't know where to put this one. We're in the 1.5 again, and I don't see myself putting Justice League above BVS, even though, as I said in the review, it's not as incoherent to me, but it's also not as interesting, and BVS is a movie, and then some, and this barely counts as a movie, so I feel like I've got to go a little bit lower. Where I'm eyeballing right now is between 
Green Lantern and the 2014 Ninja Turtles movie. I feel weird about that. I don't know if I would call Green Lantern a better movie than this. I think I'd rather watch this, but story-wise, I guess it comes together a little better, so maybe I shouldn't even put it above that. Maybe I have to put it between... Green Lantern and Super, and there's a lot of people that would probably cry foul on that even and say, no, even Super is a better movie than this. I really disliked that movie. I found it quite distasteful, but I don't know. It comes together better than this. So then I'm thinking, does it go between that and X-Men Origins? Is Origins better than this? And then the movie I have at the 118 spot right under Origins is Power Rangers the Movie. And I think I have to put this above that, at least. So let's put it there. Let's make it the new 118 spot. I think it's going to go between X-Men Origins and Power Rangers the movie. Of course, I reserve the right to change that later. But yeah, that's where I'm going to put it right now. Justice League is going to go at the 118 spot. Uh, once again, really appreciate everybody for listening. If you would like to put in your own tweet-length review, you can become a $5 patron at patreon.com slash and that gets you access to that, allows you to put in a tweet-length review for any review that I do on Superhero Rewind, and if you'd like to just become a $2 patron at the bottom tier, that gets you access to early rewinds, uh, at least a couple of days earlier. And if you'd like to become a Patreon producer, you can do that at the $10 tier. And I'd like to thank all of our producers individually right now, including Zach, Wendell Jones, Nick Manna, Nicholas Morgan, Michael Micheletti, Michael Gulick, Kareem Roberts, Jacob Schneider, Iron Bat 1993, Damon Begay, CM Productions, Victor, Thomas Edgehill, The Day Ghost, Super Billy, Stone Gasman, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Kevin, Carl Maxey, Bag Studios, Josh Hughes, John McClain, Ian McKee, Dylan Muschiello, and Chewbacca's Lover. Really appreciate you guys. Thanks so very much. And I will see you again next week with a shorter, I'm sure, review. Uh, gonna take a little bit of a breather from all of the DCEU madness, but I'm gonna keep it one more week on DC and the Justice League as kind of a palate cleanser, and because this one is gonna come out at the same time that the Snyder Cut is releasing. So I'm gonna do Lego Justice League Attack of the Legion of Doom. So look forward to that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next time.